Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to an Amber a Day, the functional nutrition podcast. I'm your host, Amber Fisher. And uh, we got a big one for you today. Ooh, this is a soapbox of mine. This is something I'm very passionate about. So we're going to talk about PCOS and IBS, the connection. Mostly we're going to talk about how to fix it because controversial opinion, but I fully believe it can be fixed. I fully believe it can be reversed. I think you can go to a place where you can eat all of the foods um, with maybe a few minor exceptions, which we'll talk about. Uh, But I don't think that you need to live your life not being able to eat chickpeas um, or anything with fiber in it because it gives you diarrhea. And I feel very confident saying that because I have done this with myself, who used to have lots of issues. And I've done it with tons and tons of clients and had a lot of success. I've even had some people who had like severe, severe diarrhea problems, um, get their normal digestion back and repair it. It wasn't an easy process. It wasn't a quick process, but it can happen. So we're going to talk about strategies for that today. Um, but before I get going, I do want to mention something that, uh, as of the recording of this, I just noticed, uh, which is that the PCOS root cause quiz that I've had linked for a while that goes with my functional PCOS course has been disabled for some time. And, um, I didn't know, um, no one told me and I should have checked it myself, but I, have a lot of things going on and I just didn't do it. And today I went to kind of go like update it and found that it had had a monthly cap on it of 30 people and, um, definitely more than 30 people every month have tried to take it. So a lot of you, um, probably gave me your email address, hoping to get to take that quiz and didn't get the chance to take it. And I am genuinely sorry. It was a complete accident. I promise I was not trying to like pull one over on you and just like get your email address all sneaky, sneaky. Um, I want you to actually want to get my emails. Trust me. So I have fixed the problem. Uh, basically I had to pay, got to pay the piper. You always had to, it's like the, the more it's kind of stuff you do online and, and stuff, everybody wants to make a dollar off of you. So, um, I'm paying like 15 to $30 a month for like 10 or 15 different little services for all my online stuff, which is not that much. It could be worse, but I probably will have to pay more in the future. Anyway, the link is fixed. So if you never got a chance to take it, but you want to, you can find it um, in my bio. You may have to give your email address again if you go through that link. But if you check your email and check your spam folder, because sometimes my emails go to spam, which is the bane of, what is that? What am I trying to say? One of my crosses to bear. I don't know. It's something that happens a lot and it's really frustrating. Um, Anyway, check your spam and you might see an email from me saying like, hey, PCOS quiz linked. And that's a direct link to it. Okay. 
Good, good, good. Um, P.S. S. Functional PCOS has been updated. It is uh, different now. It is 12 weeks and it's organized by week. Every week has educational modules, downloadable resources, meal plans, grocery lists. Like it's, it's paced for you, uh, which was one of the pieces of feedback that I got that it felt like just a lot of information was kind of overwhelming to get all at once. So this paces you through it so that you can make the changes um, a little bit more steadily and that'll help to cement them better. So it is done. It is updated. I have it at a promotional rate of um, 150, which is an extremely good deal for that course. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It's a lot of information. Um, And I don't know how long I'm going to keep it like that. Not very long, but uh, you take get it while the getting's good, my friends. I'm telling you guys on here because you you all are my favorites. My podcast listeners are my favorites. I don't have any shame in saying that. All right, so let's move on to the topic at hand, PCOS and IBS. First things first, uh, about 40% of people with PCOS have a diagnosed condition of IBS. A couple things to know with that. IBS is underdiagnosed, so a lot of people don't have you know, diagnosed IBS, but they have diarrhea pretty regularly. Um, if you've got, if you're having diarrhea more than like, gosh, I don't even know, more than once a month, um, even that, but more than once a month you're having diarrhea, like there may be an issue. Um, it's definitely a possibility that there's some IBS-y stuff going on. Same thing too. Like I talk about diarrhea a lot with IBS, but of course constipation is a factor here. And a lot of people pendulum swing between constipation and diarrhea. Or I do see some people who have um, IBS-C, which is like pure constipation. And some of the stuff that I'm talking about today is gonna is like very, very um, diarrhea specific because um, that's like the more concerning sort of version. However, a lot of this stuff also applies to IBSC because some people's bodies just process foods different ways. Like some people go through phases also where they'll be mostly diarrhea and then they'll go through a long constipation phase or whatever. So you can still get a lot out of this, even if you're mostly having constipation, because we're talking digestion in general, motility in general. And if there's issues on either end of the spectrum, there's something wrong underneath. So 40% of people with PCOS have IBS. That means it's very common. Since it's underdiagnosed, it's probably more common than that. We do know that a large uh, population of people with PCOS also have dysbiosis, which is imbalances in the bacteria in the gut. Let's talk about that for a second. I've mentioned before, of course, that there's something called your microbiome, which is a collection of bacteria that live in your gut and represent about 80% of your immune system. They're like your second brain, like they're the center of health. I mean, the gut is the center of health. So um, there's a big like gut brain connection in IBS as well, where they feed each other, especially like when anxiety comes into play here. Um, But fundamentally, I believe that it starts in the gut and then the brain is sort of like feedback looping off of that. The bacteria in your gut are very important. They're not just sitting around there doing whatever. They're creating processes. Like they're, they're actually doing things in your body. And one of the things that they do is they break down some of the foods that you eat. Um, they are helpful for breaking down certain types of gases 
that are released in the production of, you know, breaking down different foods. Um, they help break down different types of fibers and all that stuff is really important. Um, as you know, if you have IBS and you're like, oh my God, I cannot eat anything with very much fiber in it because it goes right through me. Well, that's part of where the breakdown is happening. So I like to kind of describe it like this. When your microbiome is off, or you have dysbiosis, you're missing links in the chain. So all these bacteria play different roles and they feed off of each other. It's like a symbiotic relationship with each other and with us. And um, for example, you might have the right bacteria to, to initially break down some type of fiber or food or whatever. And then you create some gases from that, which is a normal byproduct of digestion. Well, then um, the average person would have the bacteria to also consume those gases and then, you know, kind of like reduce the amount of stuff going on um, building up in the bowels. But in IBS and PCOS, a lot of times that's not happening. You're missing a link in the chain. And so the gases build and build. Um, you also tend to have more sensitive sort of nerve endings on your gut, which is related to that gut-brain connection. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that like when once you've had diarrhea many times caused, um, you know what, like once you feel those initial pangs of like, like something's not right here, even if it may be no big deal, like you can anxiety induce yourself into having diarrhea. And I think it's a feedback loop. And I think it's sort of this thing where like, if embarrassing situations have happened to you multiple times, it's traumatic. And, you know, you're having diarrhea at Barnes and Noble or whatever. And I'm like laughing because this has happened to me, but also it's also not funny. Like it's funny, but not funny. My IBS girlies understand. Um, traumatic situations happen with IBS. And I think that that makes you even more sensitive to any potential like issues going on in the gut. Like you feel some gas and you're like all of a sudden like very aware, if that makes sense. So you have more sensitive neuro endings. Um, and when your body senses that there's too much gas in there or it's not going to be able to digest whatever it is, its natural impulse is to abort mission and bring a bunch of water into the colon and kind of flush everything out, like start fresh. Um, the problem is when this happens, you flush out enzymes, very important enzymes for digestion. And then it kind of built on itself. It's like the next time you eat, you're more sensitive. So if you go straight from having diarrhea to eating a salad, um, that salad's probably going to go right through you. And then that can feed the next time you eat, it goes right through you. And so it's like, it's a vicious cycle. Um, many of you with IBS kind of like, no this process and you're intuitive and you figured out like, okay, after I have like an episode, I need to like eat a really gentle diet for like the next day or whatever. And, and then I'll feel better. And then I can kind of start tolerating things again. But some people also don't haven't made that connection or haven't figured out what it is that's triggering it. Um, when we have dysbiosis, we are very likely to have something called intestinal permeability or the street name is leaky gut. And I'm sure you've heard of leaky gut before because it's kind of all over the internet. Um, a lot of people think it's hokey, but it's not. It's a real thing. There's real scientific lit about it. And it's like a pretty recognized thing at this point. Um, leaky gut is the process that happens when you get these microscopic tears in the lining of your digestive tract. 
Your digestive tract is supposed to be like really tight. There's cells that sort of line it and they kind of act as gatekeepers. And there's all these little like corrals that go from the outside layer of the digestive tract to the inside layer connection to the bloodstream. Okay. So there's like all these little pins. And what happens in leaky gut is, uh, well, let, let me say what happens in a normal gut is you break down food, goes into your colon or your digestive tract, and then your, um, your little cells open up pin number one. They bring in a piece of food. They break it down. Um, then they let it go into pin number two and they break it down further and they go into pin number three and they break it down further. And then finally, when it's broken down into its most tiny little pieces, all its little individual units, that's when it's released into your bloodstream. Well, what happens in leaky gut is for whatever reason, and there can be many, many reasons for leaky gut development. There can be, um, food allergies, uh, stress, inset use, um, trauma, like all kinds of things can cause leaky gut, lack of sleep, um, diet and on and on and on. There can be many, many reasons, especially in our modern context where we develop leaky gut. And that's why most, I won't say most people, but that's why a lot of people have it. Anyway, what happens there is that you, you've developed these tears and they're microscopic. You can't like, you couldn't look at your colon and be like, Oh, this person has leaky gut. Look at those tears. They're very small tears, but they're big enough that they allow undigested proteins of food to get into your bloodstream. When that happens, that's when you start making antibodies to those foods. And this is where we get into the food sensitivity discussion. Now, um, cause essentially what a food sensitivity is, is, is a food that you're making antibodies to yet your body's recognizing as a foreign invader even though it's just like a regular old food. And this is one reason why when you have leaky gut, you often have a lot of food sensitivities because a lot of stuff's getting through, especially things you eat often. So if you've ever taken a food sensitivity test, like an IgG test, um, you probably saw like a ton of different things come up and you're like, a lot of these things are things I eat a lot of. And a lot of people use that as an excuse to say that food sensitivity testing is doesn't mean anything or it's just like silly because it's like, oh, these are just foods I eat a lot of. Okay. But the question is, why are you making antibodies to foods you eat a lot of? Why are they in your bloodstream in that way in the first place? Now, some antibody activity to food is totally normal. Okay. So for all my haters out there, some of that is totally normal. What's not normal is making excessive amounts of antibodies to foods. And we do have some early research that IgG antibodies in particular um, can cause symptoms in IBS, hypothyroidism. There are a few kind of conditions where they've done some deeper study on this, where they think that there is a correlation between symptoms and um and IgG antibodies, like especially if the antibodies are on the higher end, it's still very murky. So I'll be honest with you, like a lot of people don't, a lot of professionals don't run IgG testing. They don't think there's anything to it because it's like so murky. Um, you're not sure if it's really, if a food is really causing a problem or not, but I've developed a system for that. So I do use IgG testing. I also use IgE testing. IgE is the antibody that's typically more associated with food allergies. 
And that's more recognized um, that people know that that's a real thing. But I have found that high levels of IgG activity can cause symptoms, especially in IBS. Um, so I think it's important to look at both. Anyway, that was kind of a long like rant. But basically, when you've got dysbiosis, when you've got PCOS, there's a high likelihood that you have leaky gut. And if you have leaky gut, then you there's a high likelihood you have food sensitivities. And this is where I get on my soapbox about people always saying you don't need to eliminate any foods with PCOS. And like, yeah, I agree with that permanent as a permanent solution. I don't think you need to eliminate foods, but to get some fixing of this inflammation, IBS digestion issue, you may have to eliminate some, some foods that are causing problems. I just don't think there's any way around that to really get results. Um, and Maybe there is, but that's not my, that's not the way I do things. So, um, welcome to the alchemy of natural healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. If we can make that leap and assume that we've got, um, we've maybe got some leaky gut going on. Let's talk about what that can cause. So that causes a systemic inflammation. Inflammation then can raise testosterone levels. It can make you more insulin resistant. It can affect progesterone production in the ovary. Um, leaky gut has a strong correlation with like low progesterone. So if you've got PCOS and you've also got a lot of like estrogen dominance type symptoms, then there's a good chance that this may be part of your process. Like this, the gut health thing may be an, a more important thing for you than the ins, insulin resistance thing. So I've done some podcasts before on like the root sort of causes of PCOS. And you know that there's three big ones. There's the inflammation, the insulin resistance, and the adrenal stuff. If you've got inflammation, you've got leaky gut, then it can impact those other two areas and make those other two areas worse. For example, having chronic inflammation can raise DHEAS levels, which is a type of androgen produced by your adrenals. So it can contribute to that whole hyperandrogenism, like facial hair, hair loss, uh, lack of periods thing. Um, but I often find that there's an estrogen dominance connection between inflammatory PCOS and uh, food sensitivities and stuff like that, because the other thing that happens is that you break down um, estrogen metabolites in the liver and then it goes to the gut to be excreted. Um, and there's something that can happen where you can create more of these, they're called beta-glucuronidase enzymes. This is also more common in PCOS. And these beta-glucuronidase enzymes can sort of repackage estrogen metabolites like basically you reabsorb them. So you're getting continuous circulation of extra estrogens. And that's where a lot of that can come from. Um, and that's one reason why having good motility, not being constipated and not having diarrhea is important because our digestive tract is one of our detoxification systems. And if it's not working right, 
um, then that indicates that there may be some imbalances in the bacteria there. And if there's imbalances in the bacteria there, that indicates that there might be um, excessive like beta-glucuronidase activity. So you see what I mean? Like this is where, this is one of my frustrations because in my mind, and I know in a lot of my colleagues' minds, like functional people, this is how we think. This is how our brains work. We're thinking in terms of systems. We're like, okay, if this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and then oh, we're back to the we're back to the beginning again. Um, and I feel like a lot of health recommendations for PCOS, they just stop. They're like, PCOS is is your hormones are making you insulin resistant, or you're insulin resistant, and that's making your hormones mess up. And that's what's making making you gain weight uncontrollably. And like they just stop there, you know? And it's kind of like this very defeating thing. Like it's a self-defeating um, energy. It's like, okay, there's nothing I can do then because it's my hormones and my hormones are just jacked up. Like they just have always been and that's how they're always going to be. I just really don't get down with that. I don't believe that, um, especially PCOS, it's becoming more and more common. And that lines up with all these other chronic illnesses becoming more and more common and fertility becoming more and more common. Like this is not something that humankind has like always dealt with. It's new, which means that something we have been doing has been changing the way that our bodies respond. Um, and the thing that's probably changed more than anything is number one, our food and number two, like our endocrine disrupting chemical exposure, which podcast from last week is all about that. And I highly recommend listening to that because that's another piece of this puzzle. Anyway, oh my gosh, I have really gone on a, a rant here, but I only do that because I want you to kind of have a good background on why this is important and how it's working and like what the connections are, because I don't think that you can actually get to the root and kind of fix this stuff unless you understand how it works. Um, and this is just a general overview. Like I said, I hold your hand through it in functional PCOS and of course, working one-on-one. If you can get a spot with me working one-on-one, um, I would love to work with you. Okay. So the first step towards getting to the root of your IBS issues is figuring out what your triggers are. And this is actually not as complicated as it sounds. Um, it can be a little tricky, but I, I actually think it's usually a pretty simple process. It's just a hard process. Um, it's tough for people to do this because it involves cutting out certain foods, certain food groups for a period of time. But the fastest, most efficient way to do it is to do a comprehensive elimination diet, uh, which, you know, you can find those all over all over the internet. I'm pretty sure I've done a podcast about them, but it's a, it's a diet that removes like the most common inflammatory foods or the most common food sensitivities. So you've got your, um, your typical ones would be like gluten and dairy. Those are kind of the top two. And then sometimes eggs. Um, I, do see a lot of egg sensitivities in PCOS, like more than the population at large that I work with. So, I often recommend, uh, unless you're getting tested, which getting tested is great too, but uh, if you can't do that, I do sometimes say like, if you go through 30 days of removing all the other kind of top sensitivities and you're still having problems, it could be the eggs. So you might want to do another few weeks removing the eggs. Um, but 
you know, eggs are also a healthy food. They're a good source of protein. So that one's kind of a gray area. Anyway, so gluten, dairy, eggs, soy. Um, I usually don't remove legumes like beans and stuff. I just don't find that that's usually a problem. However, if we have IBS, we're probably removing those for another reason because they're high in FODMAPs. Uh, and those are the major ones. I may be forgetting one, but I think those are the major ones. So you're going to do a 30 days without those things. And you've got to be careful here because these things are, they hide and stuff. So look at the allergen menus on, on packaged foods. Like, uh, you may want to cook at home for a few weeks because you're most likely to get exposure at restaurants. Um, you know, you might be eating a lot of Chipotle. There are other things besides these food sensitivity foods that can cause issues. Like some people have issues with like spicy foods, uh, nightshades, all that kind of stuff. But this is where I would start with a comprehensive elimination diet. I would also pair that with a low FODMAP diet. Um, you can go to Monash University. They have the, they're the ones who came up with this diet and they have a list of what FODMAPs are and uh, where they're at. But so FODMAPs are foods that create from their fermentable starches. So when you break them down, they're, they're most commonly present in like different fruits and vegetables. When you break those foods down, they create more gases than other foods. And that can contribute to pain and symptoms and stuff like that. So in order to kind of get everything calm, which is the goal here, the goal is to get some space, to get some calm, to get some rest for your digestive tract. We're going to avoid uh, FODMAPs too. And that for like nine out of 10 people should be enough to get you uh, at least not being triggered like as much to get you some space. Um, I typically in my practice, like one-on-one, -on -one, I will also do blood testing for IgE and IgG antibodies as well. And we remove kind of the foods that come up higher. Some common things that I see sometimes that are also associated would be like, I see beef and pork sometimes. Um, sometimes I see avocado. So, you know, there's like random stuff that can be going on here. So if you go through this process and it doesn't help, that's more than likely what's going on is that it's a food that you're eating fairly regularly that you haven't been eliminating, that um, you have a sensitivity or allergy to, and you just don't realize it because it may be like typically considered a healthy food or something like that. Bananas is another thing I see a lot. I don't recommend cutting out all of all of the foods, like the ones that I just mentioned. I don't recommend cutting those out on your own. Um, I would work with somebody if you get to that point. If like, if you go through a comprehensive elimination, you go through low FODMAP and it doesn't help, and you can't like get much information because you're not seeing a reduction in symptoms, then I think it's severe enough issue that you probably need to work with somebody to kind of guide you through it. Um, but for most people, this will really, really help. So while you're doing this, what you want to do is start taking a good quality probiotic. Uh, now, probiotics are complicated and I like to, I really do like to avoid kind of recommending specific probiotics just because everyone's needs are so different. Um, but I know you guys are going to want a recommendation because I do get messages from you all asking for that. So I will provide a couple of recommendations. I will say that I can't like, like, legally, I do not have access to 
recommending the probiotics that I actually use in practice, um, just like widely over the internet, because those brands don't wish to be um, used in that way. They want to be used like in a practitioner sort of relationship. So you can get access to that kind of stuff through functional PCOS. I have a list of, I have, I get you connected with like my full script account and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I will link to some that I think are good to start with. The other thing is, um, if you don't tolerate probiotics, so let's say you've taken a probiotic and it, it really hurts your stomach. This is the one thing where in opposite of food, if you eat a food and it gives you diarrhea, it's like, okay, we need to stop eating that food for a while. The opposite is true of probiotics. If you take probiotics and they cause diarrhea, what's happening there is you just don't have the right tolerance. You don't have the right buildup of good bacteria. So you need to start slower. You need to either go on a lighter probiotic or take less of the one that you're taking. What you need to do is find a level of probiotic support that you can tolerate that's not giving you diarrhea and then slowly build up. Because if you get diarrhea from probiotics, that's a strong sign that you need probiotics. Um, so if you're having trouble there, go on a lighter probiotic, less colony forming units. You know how it says like 15 CFU, 30 CFU, uh, you know, generally the more the better. Uh, but in cases like this, if you're, especially if you're not tolerating them, you might want to start on something lower, something that, that seems fine that you can tolerate and then build yourself up. Also, if you're having diarrhea, taking something called Saccharomyces boulardii, it's a specific strain that, um, has been well studied in, in diarrhea and helps a lot. So I recommend adding that with a, like a more comprehensive probiotic. Um, in practice one-on-one, -on -one, I tend to use microbiome labs products. Mm -hmm. Oops, there goes my phone. So like Megaspore uh, products and they have some precursors, but, um, I can't link to those. So anyway, uh, I'll link to some good ones to start out with. So you want to be doing that at the same time, because that's sort of like building up your bacterial balance while you're doing the hard work of giving your gut a rest. Um, and take good notes. If you have foods that you eat, that give you gas or bloating or that cause diarrhea during this elimination diet piece, um, take note of that. I also recommend staying away from like fermented foods and things like that during this time. I know you hear that, oh, that's a great way of getting probiotics, but it's also a great way of triggering diarrhea if you're not used to them um, because there can be there's generally like a lot of like yeasts and fermentation and stuff happening there. And it's just not good on a kind of damaged gut. So save that stuff for later when your gut is a little bit more healthy. So start taking a probiotic. There's also other things that I tend to recommend for this sort of gut healing piece. Um, during these first 30 days though, I think just a probiotic is probably like, you know, you want to start small. You don't want to go crazy. Um, cause you don't want to cause like a die off situation that makes things worse. So just start with a probiotic. Then, um, after about 30 days, you can start reintroducing the foods that you eliminated for sensitivity purposes and the higher FODMAP foods. So you do these in two different ways. Sensitivity foods, you sort of like load your system with it, uh, one day of the week, like you eat a bunch of dairy one day. 
uh, and then you kind of like wait a week and see what happens. Do you get an acne breakout? Do you have diarrhea? Do Does it give you constipation? You know, does it give you gas and bloating? Like there are all kinds of different f- sensitivity signs, headaches, um, fatigue, brain fog. There's all kinds of different things. Basically, if you don't feel good at any point over the next week, that could be a response to that dairy. So uh, that would be a sign that you'd want to leave it out of your diet for a bit longer. Um, so I kind of have people do like one food a week, add those back in, see how they go. If it doesn't go well, you need to remove it again and keep it out a little bit longer. Try again in a couple more months. Uh, generally, every time you try a food and it goes badly, you're supposed to kind of like add a little bit of time to the next time that you're going to do it. So if you try it at month one, it doesn't go well, try it again in two months you try that, it doesn't go well, try it again in like four months. If you try that, doesn't go well, try it again in six months and then a year and then every year after that. Because that, the the longer it goes where you're not tolerating it, the more chance that it's actually an allergy problem, especially if the reaction's immediate or within the first 24 hours, I guess I'd say. Uh, Okay. So gradually trying to reintroduce those foods is important. You know, you kind of take it like an experiment. You're testing. You're seeing, am I sensitive to this food? Am I not sensitive to this food? And no judgment either way, right? Like if you tolerate gluten and you feel fine with gluten, more power to you. There's some great whole wheat things that you can eat with gluten. I eat gluten and I don't think that there's anything wrong with eating some of that. Um, Same thing with dairy. I want you to be able to eat as many foods as you can tolerate. The key is I just want you to tolerate. Um, with the FODMAPs, it's a little different. So those foods you would reintroduce, but very slowly, and you would build tolerance to them because what FODMAPs have in them are, are prebiotics. Prebiotics are food for your good bacteria. When you at first are missing those good bacteria, or you don't have enough of them, then like I mentioned earlier, you have breaks in the chain. So you get this sort of buildup of gases from eating these products that can cause pain and can then contribute to symptoms. So you want to start out with just a little bit, you know, a couple of bites of an apple, see how you do. If you do fine, the next time, a couple days later, maybe you can have a fourth of an apple. That goes fine. A couple days later, you can have a whole half of an apple and you just kind of keep building up with these FODMAP foods um, a little at a time until you're eating a normal amount and you don't really have to limit them anymore. And uh, if you have an episode or whatever, it's okay. Doesn't mean that you're like allergic to them or sensitive to them. It just means that you're not tolerating them yet. Um, For the most part, of course, there's sometimes there's overlap, but for the most part, that's what that means. So you just kind of have to like slowly, steadily build, build, keep pushing, but don't push too hard. Be gentle. I know that this is confusing. And when you're in it in the moment, it can be very scary and you're not really sure what to do. And that's why, of course, like that's why I got into the profession that I got into to help guide people through that process. Um, I think it's always fun to have a guide or good to have a guide, I guess, for this. Um, But I know sometimes that's not possible. So just keep pushing, gently pushing, um, take breaks if you need to, etc. So if you do all of that, once you get back to the point where you're pretty much able to eat most things, maybe you have a couple things you're sensitive to that you're avoiding, but like you're not having to limit fiber or raw foods or anything like that anymore. That's something I didn't mention. 
which I will say now, is that um, I would cook all your food during this process. Don't eat like raw foods like salads and stuff because sometimes that's a trigger. Okay. Uh, once you're to the point where you are eating raw foods again, where you are eating fiber again, where you are eating FODMAPs again, and you feel pretty good, even if you're still eliminating gluten or dairy or something like that, that's when you can start implementing a lot of those PCOS strategies that I talked about um, or that I have talked about. That's when you can start eating a more balanced sort of diet for PCOS. And that's when the key is to start really pushing to get at least 30 grams of fiber a day. Um, because what that does is continues to feed those colonies that you've been working on. I'd also suggest um, continuing to bump up on your probiotics if you had to start small or continuing to take a really good high quality probiotic. Um, I'm of the opinion that everyone should be on a probiotic always because I just think that so many things about modern life affect our microbiome and we need that support. Um, and I don't think you can get it all from food. I don't think you can get it all from kombucha and yogurt. So I recommend a daily probiotic. Um, but, uh, and I'll link to the one that I usually like to recommend for that. But I do think that um, you should continue on that because that's going to help keep your digestion regular. And um, the other thing to remember is that sometimes you'll pendulum swing. So especially if you've been coming from having a lot of diarrhea, you might pendulum swing to having more constipation or to like skipping days. And that's normal. Um, that's what I've observed about the body is that it it kind of like uh, takes a little bit to find its happy medium. So you go from having a lot of diarrhea, sometimes you'll go to being like slightly more constipated for a while. Eventually, give it a few months, it should even out. If it's not, that's when you can start doing strategies like increasing your fiber, water intake, um, possibly taking a little bit more magnesium or something like that to kind of like soften the stool a bit. Um, but I like to avoid laxatives, enemas, all that kind of stuff, unless it's just absolutely necessary, because I do think it kind of feeds this vicious cycle, especially the laxatives, like, um, try to avoid those as much as you can, unless you really, really need it. And, um, you'll just keep trying foods, keep adding more variety in, and you can behave normally with food at that point. If you're still stuck, like if you, if you get stuck at any point in this process, please reach out to somebody who knows what they're doing on this. Like, um, I would suggest avoiding people who give very like basic prescriptive diets for IBS who are like, oh, everyone needs to be on low FODMAP for IBS. I disagree with that. I think low FODMAP is a tool, just like a comprehensive elimination diet is a tool. It's a, it's a way to gather more data. It's a way to help you get some relief. And you might feel really good on low FODMAP, but it's also not good for your gut long-term because it's not feeding those good gut bacteria. So you sh like FODMAPs are important the the fermentable starches in there that's that's food for your good gut bacteria so anyone who tells you to stay on that permanently i you know that's something that i i very much disagree with so find somebody who kind of like is of the functional mind or they don't necessarily have to be associated with the functional institute for functional medicine and not everyone who's associated with that i agree with either but just somebody who seems to like understand the connections between gut health and IBS and, you know, food and triggers of gut health and, and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and you know, if it ends up being me, Hey, would love to work with you. I, I do, um, have one-on-one programs that I run every month and also, um, coming up sometime this summer, I believe we may be running functional PCOS as a group program. Me and some colleagues may run it together as a group program. So stay tuned for that. I will give you more information on that if that happens. Um, I don't think we'll be running people through the elimination diet portion of it. But like I said, that is something that is covered in functional PCOS. Phase one is a comprehensive elimination diet. So it walks you like it's got meal plans for it. You know, it walks you through the process. It walks you through reintroducing the foods. Like if you need some support, but you're not quite like at the need to work one-on-one with somebody level, that's a good place to start. It really, really is. That course is like super comprehensive. I'm very proud of it. Okay. Uh, I hope that was helpful. I think that's all I have for today, but I do know that this topic brings up a lot of questions for people. And just a reminder, I do have a Google doc where you can fill out questions for the podcast. So please, please, if you have questions on anything I said, I do answer questions. Um, I will do podcasts from time to time that are inspired by questions or that directly answer questions. And, um, yeah, let me know what they are. And also if you enjoyed today's podcast, if it was helpful for you, please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes. Um, that really helps the podcast a lot. If you did not enjoy today's episode, then I don't know why you're still listening to me, but please don't leave me a mean review because it hurts my feelings. Um, okay. You guys have a really good week and I will talk to you soon. If you learned something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both, I'd love it if you would leave me an iTunes review and share this with a friend. If this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer, there is a Google form that you can use to ask me any question you want, and I might answer it here on the podcast. I do it all the time, and I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.